We see the greatness of our God in Genesis chapter 1. Please turn there if you have your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, we read verses 1 through 25. And we read in Jesus' name. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of your glory today, your power, your majesty. You are the creator God, and we acknowledge that. We bow before you today. We are accountable to you because you have made us. 
And we thank you that you've also provided a Savior for us in your Son, Jesus. Teach us, we pray, from the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. We pray in your name. Amen. Henry Morris, in his commentary on Genesis, says this, that the book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. And he is a man that obviously believes in the inspiration of Scripture, and so it's not like he's pitting Genesis against John or Revelation or anything like that. But you see, Genesis is the foundation for the rest of Scripture. R. Kent Hughes says it provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. And if you don't understand Genesis, you will not really understand the rest of Scripture. Remember when Jesus met the two men on the road to Emmaus, and they were talking about all the things that had happened in Jerusalem, of Jesus' death and resurrection, and Jesus was walking and listening to them. And what he said to them, Oh, you men, slow of heart, To believe all that the scriptures wrote about Jesus. And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses, beginning with Genesis, Jesus taught them all that scripture said about him. I would have loved to have been there that day to see Jesus taking the scriptures right from Genesis on and showing all the ways that it pointed to him. Genesis is foundational to our understanding of scripture. And Genesis gives us the origin of all things and therefore the meaning of all things. You see, your belief concerning your origin will determine your belief concerning your purpose and destiny. If you believe in evolution, then you would believe that there is no God. You are not accountable to anyone. You can just live and die like an animal. And that's how our culture is going, isn't it? People living like animals because they do not believe that we've been created in the image of God. We have just evolved. And so, no wonder there is evil in the world today. If you believe that you have been created in the image of God, you are accountable to God. You have a soul that will live forever. You will stand before God one day, and that ought to affect the way that you live. Realizing that God is your maker, and you will give an account of your life to Him. So if you're going to understand your purpose in life, you need to understand Genesis. What does it teach about the origin of all things? It was the custom in ancient times to give or to name a book by its opening words or word. And this is what the Hebrew did, Hebrews did in, in naming this book in the Hebrew Bereshith, which means in the beginning. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in about 250 B.C., the Greek equivalent of in the beginning is Genesis, which means origin or beginnings. And as you read the book of Genesis, then you see the beginning of many different things, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of life, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage and family, the beginning of sin and language and government and nations and religions. Genesis truly is a book of beginnings. And that's where you've got to start. 
You will not understand God's plan for the world unless you really understand Genesis. Creation. The fall. The flood. The table of the nations. These are foundational truths, especially in our culture today, that we must understand and that we must proclaim to a world that needs to know about Jesus. Today we look at the beginning of the universe and we see how the heavens and the earth came into being. And the beginning of Genesis simply states it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if Genesis is the foundational book of Scripture, Genesis 1-1 is the foundational verse of this foundational book. Henry Morris again says, If a person really believes Genesis 1-1, he will not find it difficult to believe anything else recorded in the Bible. That is, if God really created all things, then He controls all things and can do all things. Would you agree? If Genesis 1-1 is really true, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's foundational. We understand that. We won't have any trouble believing all of Scripture. God is who He said He is. We must acknowledge that truth today. As you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are phrases that are used over and over. And when I teach Genesis in Bible school, some of you uh, have had me in Genesis class, I have them take the book, take chapter 1, read through the chapter, and list all the phrases that are repeated. And those phrases that are repeated in this chapter then really become the principles that we need to learn about creation. And it's kind of fun to go through there and just list all the phrases that are repeated over and over. And that in the Hebrew mind is to emphasize something. Repetition. Teachers, right? You would probably agree repetition is the secret of learning. How many of you told your students that, huh? Right? So here's the phrases. Let's look at four of them today. First of all, God created all things by His Word. And that's the first phrase that we see in Genesis repeated. God said. We find it at least eight times in this chapter. And in every case, it is followed by a phrase that explains what happened when God spoke. When God said. Look at some examples. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 7 says, and it was so. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. And it was so. Kind of interesting when God spoke, things happen, right? (laughs) And the writers of Scripture make that clear. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Romans 4, verse 17 says that God calls into being that which does not exist. 2 Peter 3, 5 says, By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. God's version of Big Bang, right? When God spoke, bang, it happened, right? God said, and it was so. 
And the word translated created in this chapter is the Hebrew word bara. And that word in scripture is used to describe only what God does. Only God creates. We might make things, but we are taking material that already exists and putting it together, like a watch or maybe a cell phone. You know, we're pretty proud of our technology today, aren't we? We think we're pretty hot stuff. We make things like GPS and cell phones and so forth. How many have made things by speaking it into existence? existence? Only God. God said, and it was so. You ever see the phrase ex nihilo? That means that God created out of nothing. He simply spoke it into existence by His Word. There's the power of our God. Second phrase we see repeated in this chapter has to do with the days of creation. And the principle is that God created all things in six days. Now, you know as well as I do that some Christians today try to harmonize, as if you can, evolution and creation by saying that God is the creator, but he did it through evolution. God got it all started, and then evolution just kind of took over, and then it happened that way. And so they redefine the word day in Genesis 1. They say that the day doesn't really refer to a normal day, 24-hour day like we would say, but it refers to long periods of time, maybe millions of years, maybe billions of years. And they try to prove their point by pointing to other verses in Scripture where the word day is used in a different way other than like a 24-hour day. For example, we have the phrase, the day of the Lord. A prophetic day. And so they'll say, well, look at the word day there. It doesn't really mean a 24-hour day. So maybe in Genesis it doesn't mean that as well. Or they'll quote from John 8, verse 56, where Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Okay, the word day there is also used in a different sense. Like we might say, back in my day. Isn't it interesting when you talk about the 70s or the 50s or the 60s, back in my day, the kids just think, whoa, you are really old, aren't you? Well, we use the word day like that as well. But the question we need to ask isn't, what does the word day mean in other places in the Bible? What's the question we need to ask? The question we need to ask is, what does the word day refer to in Genesis 1? In the context, how is the word day being used? Verse 5 is the first use of the word day. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. It's obvious that this refers to a normal day because it is qualified by two phrases. The first one is this, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now it's obvious that the word day there is referring to millions of years, right? Hardly. The light day, the darkness night, sounds to me like 
A day like today, doesn't it? And then the second phrase is just as obvious. There was evening and there was morning one day. How can you say that Genesis 1 allows for millions and millions of years when the word day is qualified there? Evening and morning. So if you take the simple words of the text as they are written, it is clear what God means by the word day. Six normal days. Henry Morris says, if the reader asks himself the question, suppose the writer of Genesis wished to teach his readers that all things were created and made in six literal days, then what words would he have used to best convey the thought? He'd have to answer that the writer would have used the actual words in Genesis 1. If he wished to convey the idea of long geological ages, however, he could surely have done it far more clearly and effectively in other words than the words which he selected. It is clearly his intent to teach creation in six literal days. Therefore, the only proper way to interpret Genesis 1 is not to interpret it at all. That is, we accept the fact that it was meant to say exactly what it says. The days are literal days, and the events described happen in just the way described." Martin Luther put it this way. He said, if you cannot understand how this could be done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. There's vintage Luther right there. He says, for you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. And since God is speaking... It is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish to go. There was evening and there was morning. The first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. The third principle, God created all things to reproduce after their kind. And if you think about that, that really is an amazing thing. Not only did God create everything out of nothing by simply speaking His Word, He created all things with the ability to reproduce. So trees have seeds in them that will produce trees. Have you seen any of those lately? Those, uh, the maple helicopter things? Oh, they're flying all over, filling your gutters, right? Unless you've got those gutter covers. But those trees have the ability to reproduce. Same with fish, same with birds, same with us. Eleven times in Genesis 1 we see the phrase, after their kinds, or according to their kind. And there's obviously variation within the kind, like the dog kind, all the way from huge... What do you call those big dogs, Beethoven? Uh, St. Bernard's, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get a senior moment when everybody's watching you. St. Bernard's to as small as what? Little uh, schnauzers or we have a, a, a cockapoo. Great variation in dogs, isn't there? And cats. Variation in fish. 
How about people? There's no two of us that really look alike. None of you are quite as good looking as I am, but you're close, okay? We all look a little bit different. So there's variation within kind, but there is no change of one kind into another kind. Everything reproduces after its kind, right? Plant corn, you're going to get corn. If one kind actually changed into another kind, would there not be some evidence of that in the fossil record? You look at biology texts and you kind of get that impression, don't you? You see that evolutionary tree of life with all the changes of one thing into another. Except when you look at the fossil record, it isn't there. It's just in the textbooks. And even Charles Darwin had to admit this. He said geology, and now take this as Darwin, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graded organic chain. And this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection that can be urged against the theory of evolution. Darwin saying you can't find it in the fossil record. Which didn't cause him to abandon the theory of evolution. He just figured we hadn't found them yet. They've got to be there somewhere. We haven't found them yet. And over 150 years later, we still haven't found them yet. Isn't it time to abandon a theory that has no evidence to support it? And yet our culture has basically swallowed that lie. The theory of evolution. And we're seeing the effects of that in our culture today. No God, no morality, no accountability. You can trace it back to evolution. And it's no longer just looked as, as, as a theory. It's, it's accepted as a scientific fact. It's a lie. God created things to reproduce according to their kind. The final phrase we note... God created all things as good. God surveyed all that he had created and he saw that it was good. That statement is found seven times in Genesis 1 and the last time it says it was very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. Why did God say that what he had made was very good? Think of the beauty of creation. I was sitting out on the deck last night and looking at the grass and the trees and the pond and the birds, the flowers. You travel this country and you see the beauty of what God has made from the Grand Canyon in Arizona to the mountains of Colorado to God's country of Upper Michigan and so forth. Beauty of God's Creation. Think of the vastness of creation. Think of how big our world is and how long it would take for you and I to explore the whole world. And that's just a speck. A speck in the midst of all the, the galaxies that God has created. Think of the complexity of creation. Think of your own body, how complex your body is. Just take your heart. 
Dr. Don Byerly describes the heart or the body as having 60,000 miles of blood vessels. The heart pumps blood through this labyrinth and back every minute, every day, your 10-ounce heart muscle contracts at least 100,000 times. Every year, the human heart circulates nearly 1.6 million gallons of blood, enough to fill 200 tank cars, each with a capacity of 8,000 gallons. The heart beats 2.5 billion times in an average lifetime without taking a vacation, which is good, right? Even with the application of the human race's combined intelligence, we have never created a machine that can can compare with this. And yet we say that this happened by chance. Really? How about your brain? The human brain is the most complex and orderly arrangement of matter in the universe. It contains at least 10 billion brain cells with over 100 trillion neurological interconnections. If all these were laid end-to-end, they would circle the equator four times. The brain can hold the information content of 25 million books, filling a bookshelf 500 miles long. You got that kind of brain, seminarians? You should, be, you should have a 4 shouldn't you, in seminary? Straight A's, right, with a brain like that, right? Young brain like that, not an old brain like some of us. Amazing. God said, this is good. This is very good, what he had made. So what does creation tell us about God? Psalm 19 puts it this way, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. Think of it. Everywhere you look, every people in the world sees evidence of the glory of God. Look to the sky, you see all that God has created. Look at the very smallest thing, you see that here's the handiwork of our Creator. And Romans 1, which was read from this morning, really puts it well. Creation reveals the glory of God to everyone. Everyone sees evidence of God's handiwork. And because of that, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that we are without excuse. We cannot say there's no evidence of a creator. There's no evidence of God. Listen to what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We cannot claim, I didn't know there was a God. 
I didn't know that I was created in His image. I wasn't aware of that. Paul says God has made it known to people, but they want to suppress the truth so they can live in unrighteousness. They want to believe that that they evolved somehow so that we are just like animals. We go in the ground and die and that's it. And we don't have to face judgment. But there will come a day of judgment. We will stand before this magnificent, powerful, majestic Creator. And we will give an account of our lives and we will have only one answer that day. And that is Jesus, because that loving, merciful God sent His Son to die in our place so that we might have a right relationship with Him. So when we stand before Him one day, our only plea is the mercy of Jesus. That He, the Creator, took on human flesh He became our substitute. He took our sin and He nailed it to the cross. He died for us and He rose again. So we can stand before a holy God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No condemnation to those in Him. You did not evolve. You were created in the image of God. And you will stand before Him one day. And I pray that you are ready to meet Him. That you can say, I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I live in a right relationship with God because of Jesus. Apart from Him, there is no hope. But to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called the children of God even to those who believe on His name. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of Your glory today. You are the Creator God. You are a holy God. We are sinful people in need of a Savior, and we thank You that You provided a Savior for us. Lord, speak to us today through your word. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of all that you have done for us to save us. As we come to your table this morning, we are grateful that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.